Hi, and welcome to episode four of Lady Justice, Women of the Court, a podcast featuring four women state Supreme Court justices discussing the judicial branch of government and their experiences on their state's highest court. Recently, the women were guests at a virtual event live from Austin, Texas. They took questions from the audience and shared their thoughts on women in leadership. Justice Eva Guzman of Texas hosts this episode, and here she is now. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Lady Justice, Women of the Court. I'm Texas Supreme Court Justice Eva Guzman. I want to begin today's episode by talking about an event we recently had the pleasure of speaking at, and that's a virtual event organized by the Women's Chapter of the Texas Trialers Association. During the event, we uh, took questions from women attorneys, and that led to an open and honest discussion on topics like women in leadership and balancing our careers with family life and life outside of work in general. This episode features portions from that event. And stay tuned afterwards as we talk about two of my favorite things, holidays and books. Justice McCormick wasn't able to make it to the Trialers event, but she will join us later on in the episode. And now we turn to Elizabeth Larrick of the Texas Trialers Association who moderated the event. We begin with her fielding a question from one of the attorneys in attendance. I'm going to turn it over to Sarah Neal. Uh, Sarah Neal is an attorney out in West Texas, and she actually, uh, she and I kind of brainstormed to put this together. So I appreciate her help doing that. But Sarah Neal, do you have a question for the justices? Yes. Uh, Good afternoon, justices. Um, Thankfully, women as judicial leaders are much more commonplace than they have been even in the not so distant past. Do you think that women leaders need different leadership qualities than men? And what are some ways that we could cultivate those qualities? I can start. It's Eva Guzman. Um, I I don't think women need different qualities. I really don't um, than men. Uh, There are a lot of styles of leadership. Um, I think if I were to describe my style as a democratic. um, But what I mean by that is it's one that embraces collective success. And especially on a court, a high court with, with so many different members, you know, you have to embrace this collective success and pride in our jurisprudence, but then at the same time, you want to encourage, if you're a leader, you want to encourage individual creativity and, and accomplishment, but do I think um, that women um, engage the same leadership attributes um, in the same way? No. I'm going to mention Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers by analogy. Um, They both had to use the same dance steps and the same moves. You know, if it was me, I'd be doing salsa, but, you know, they were doing their thing. So it's the same moves um, and they were working toward the same goal. And you think about our organizations and that's what we're doing. But she had to do everything um, he did, except backwards and in high heels. And I mean, we know that as women leaders, and I think women are doing the same things in a different way with a little more effort, a little more sugar sometimes, a smile on your face. Uh, uh, Sometimes, you know, a male colleague might be able to say the same thing and they don't have to smile, but if you do, you win. And so we adjust, but it's the same qualities, the same style, just executed a little differently. And that's a good thing, I think. Rhonda, go ahead. 
Um, yeah, I, I don't know that there's different qualities based on gender too much. Um, I love Eva's analogy because I always said that I wished my male opponents when I ran for office had to wear high heels um, because it just seemed like we started from a different place, you know, on the campaign trail or, you know, pounding in yard signs and high heels um, was just something different um, than they had to experience. But um, I think that, you know, maybe the women, um, I will say this, uh, women, one of the characteristics is that we need to develop the ability to balance, um, have balance in our life and have that to be good leaders because you can't be a good leader if you don't know how to sort of balance your work life and your personal life and make sure that we do that. And then I think sometimes um, as women, we think that it's a weakness to ask for help. Um, and we too easily think that we can do it all and handle it all. And that if we say we can't um, or that we need assistance, that that's a sign of weakness. And maybe that's because we, you know, are sort of trying to break barriers and break, break into, you know, those glass ceilings. And so we can't ask for help, you know, because then it may look like we can't do it. Um, and so I think sort of overcoming that skill and realizing that it's a strength to sit, to ask for help and it's a strength to still delegate. Um, and to recognize that and um, develop that ability to not hesitate um, to say, you know, I'm going to lead our organization here, but I'm going to need you with me and I'm going to need you to assist me with this. And this is our goal. But by the way, you know, or I'm going to take over, you know, sure, I'll chair this committee, but I'm going to need this, this and this from you if you guys are going to have me chair this um, and not be afraid of that. Um, and so those are the only things that I would sort of encourage, um, you know, the future women leaders, which I think is this caucus, you know, to, to really own that ability um, and the ability to say no, and you don't have to give a reason. Um, and that was sort of something I've told my, you know, girls is, you know, we feel like we have to give a reason if we say no, we're not going to do something and, and you don't owe a reason for no. So, um, you know, just no. <laughs> if you're too busy and have too much on your plate. Well, I would add, um, I certainly agree with everything that, that's been said, and I'll just add a couple of other observations. The first is, I don't think we have to have different skills, but I think sometimes women just have to be better at it. Um, and I'm not saying that's fair or right, but it's sort of the reality that I've learned to adapt in. And, you know, there's no, you can, so you can wring your hands about it or you can just, um, you know, get better. And, you know, if you're the, the, the most skilled person in the room, um, I have always found that gender and other stereotypes, stereotypes start to fall away. Um, and, and that may be simplistic, but uh, I think at least in my experience, and so you find your leadership training where you can find it. You know, you don't start out uh, as a justice on your state Supreme Court. You know, you start out in your firm. You start out, you know, taking uh, a leadership position uh, in your community. You know, I learned a lot of the skills I've learned in terms of leading uh, have come from those nonprofit volunteer opportunities, you know, you just apply all those skills and you add to them. And, you know, you, uh, rather than worrying about, at least from my perspective, what the impediments are, you just focus on making yourself better um, and being the, the, the most talented person uh, for the job, 
you know, which is what we do when you run for office. You make yourself the, the most qualified, the best person, you, you know, and voters can tell if you believe that. Uh, voters know when you meet them or when you talk uh, whether you believe you're the best person. And so you just build that up. And then my second point, I guess, is uh, my one of my sort of themes is women helping women. You know, we all can talk about the good old boys network, but sometimes we are not as good about helping each other on the way up. Sometimes we feel other women threaten us or, um, you know, if, if she gets that opportunity, you know, I won't get it. I'm a firm believer in, you know, women helping women, women supporting women, women mentoring women. So I think um, women's groups remain very important. Um, not because, you know, we need to be separate, but because I think we can lift each other up. Thank you so much. It was, um you know, appreciate everybody's responses um, for sure. And I, you know, Justice Walker talked about, uh, you know, getting involved, you know, in your community and just even nonprofits. And so I just kind of want to toss that question to, to, to Justice Guzman and to Justice Wood about kind of cultivating, like, how do we help ourselves, like, how, how do we help ourselves cultivate those leadership uh, skills or qualities? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, when you think about judicial leaders, you have to think about uh, service. And I think um, servant leadership is, is so important, particularly when you um, view it in the context of our profession. Um, I said this today earlier, you know, it's a profession where there's such an opportunity to take our skill set as lawyers, as professionals, and impact the world. If you think about history and the great changes that have been made, the reason I'm here is a brown woman, a woman of color with, with immigrant parents, with third grade educations. I'm here because there were lawyers who came before me who argued for civil rights and who argued for our right to have a seat at the table. So when you think about service and leadership Look for the opportunities that speak to your heart. And I think um, when you think about service, think about what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes. I see that a lot with access to justice. You know, I am far removed from how I grew up, but I try to keep it front and center because it's important. It gives me perspective and it helps me view um, service to others in a, through a different lens. Um, children in foster care, uh, sometimes they go from home to home with a trash bag, with their clothes in a trash bag. There's so many ways to help these kids in the foster care and the child welfare system. So I would say, think about as service, think about leadership as, as servant leadership, walk in their shoes, think about what it would be like and get in there make make a difference you're equipped you have the skill set yeah and I would add that um, you know just like I mean I advise college students what classes to take take what you like and you're interested in because those are what you're going to do well at you know to earn the GPA to get into law school so the same thing with service projects find the ones that I think that's what Justice Guzman was saying is what is near and dear to your heart, because that's what then you're going to find yourself showing up at, you know, at 8 a.m. on a weekend, um, you know, or staying late at night and working on because it, it attaches to your heart. But, you know, the little things matter, whether it's, you know, you're buying school supplies for your child and you 
double by and drop it off at your local casa, you know, or juvenile court. Um, just those little things matter. But um, another thing I'll say is because I assume a lot of you may want to, you know, run for office or the judiciary. And so you're saying, well, how, you know, your questions to us are how to be a good leader. And so people come to me and say, I think I want to run for judge. And I'll say, well, what have you done for service in your community? What boards have you been on? What organizations have you volunteered on? And they stare at me with blank faces. And I said, you're going to go to your community and ask them to put you on the full-time payroll as a judge to serve the community when you have no track record of serving that community. And to me, that's just, you know, ridiculous, you know, and I just, you know, I'm kind of just fully honest. It's like, how can you go ask them to, you know, put you on the payroll to serve that community when you've never shown an interest in serving the community? And so I do think that if, if the judiciary in that path in, is your goal and your dream, um, you know, you got to sort of put your time and efforts and prove that to your community and prove that you really care because this job isn't just a title. Um, it's sort of a way of life and a decision that you want to serve. You know, it's saying, I want to do this. So, you know, put your money where your mouth is and actually get out there and serve. I didn't mean that to sound like a lecture and it probably comes <laughs> <across> that way. <laughs> it's motivational, hopefully. And this leads perfectly into our next question and Valerie is going to take it for us. And I just want to take a moment and say, uh, you know, Valerie ran this year um, and uh, in, a, in an election and for a judgeship and didn't didn't quite make it, but I know that her heart is 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 in it. So this this question is just specifically picked for her. So thank you, Valerie, for joining us. Okay, thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my question is: What are some of the obstacles or challenges women face to becoming a judge or advancing as judges? I'm going to let Justice Wood start because I know that in in listening that you had you had run you had run an election and then didn't make it but ran again uh, and did so. Do you mind kicking this one off? Sure, and I think and, and Justice Walker will probably speak to this too. So um, yeah, I I ran and lost one of my court of appeals races and um, and didn't flinch about turning around and running the very next cycle um, because if that's what I wanted to do, then that's what I wanted to do. And that wasn't going to deter me. Um, so um, I remember the day after the election that everybody, uh, so I was on the trial bench and I was running for the court of appeals. And the day after, I remember everybody coming in and going, well, whew, aren't we glad that's behind us, you know? And, and they were like, so now we can just get back and you're just gonna, you know, focus in on your, you know, basically spending out your career on the trial bench, which is nothing, you know, it's a great job. And I just sort of looked at them, you know, and it was like, I just spent, you know, a year of my life traveling 18 counties telling them that I was ready to serve them on the Court of Appeals. What makes you think that the next day something changed? And it didn't. And so, I mean, I just, I think there was a lot of respect that second time around that the people said, hey, she's right back out here and that she didn't just walk away and that she came back and there are people that I went to in the groups and said, I was here and asked for your vote. I know I didn't get it last time, but I'm asking for your vote again. Maybe you voted for my opponent because you had a loyalty or a family connection or whatever reason. 
um, and that person, you know, I'm running for a different, you know, slot or whatever. And so I'm asking that you reconsider me um, and just went group to group and person to person. And, um, you know, I ended up winning by like 67% the second time around. And so um, it wasn't even close. Um, but um, if, if this is the job you want, Valerie, then I say you go get it, you know, and don't let it stop you. Um, I'd say as a woman, um, I think that, um, again, it's just the balance in your families. I'm blessed to have a great husband and spouse um, that, um, you know, we don't sort of assume that I handle everything at home <laughs> and, you know, that there's this sort of, you know, um, view that the wife handles everything. And so, you know, when we decided what I was going to do and that we sat down and, you know, times when I was running for office, he had to sh sort of shoulder it because um, I was, you know, out campaigning and he understood that and was willing to take that on. And um, we've always been 50-50 partners, but he had to do way more than 50% um, and was willing to share that burden. And so having that help, um, otherwise it would have been quite an obstacle. Um, and the one thing I do remember is that um, my first race, my male opponent, I'd gotten up and they'd asked us to share and why you were the one for the job. And so I shared all my, you know, sort of accomplishments or what I thought was going to sell, you know, me and my opponent got up and told the crowd and said, I would like to know who was raising her children while she was um, achieving those accomplishments. And, you know, that has been what, maybe 16 years ago now. And I still just vividly remember that. Um, and, um, that, you know, nobody asked the male candidates, you know, ever who's raising their children ever. Um, so I'm hoping things have changed with that, but, um, that nobody would ever say that now, but, um, you know, sort of had to overcome that, you know, um, I think a male back then running with four children, everybody didn't blink, but a mom running with four children, I sort of got the look about, who's at home while you're, you know, at these campaign events at night and on the weekends. Um, so um, I'm hoping that's changed, you know, so I haven't been in an election now for, you know, seven years. So I'm hoping I don't experience that when I run again. But Beth, I don't know what you have to add. Sure, no, that's great. And, and like Rhonda, um, I have lost an election and won an election. Uh, actually, I think she's won more than one, but um, the first time I ran in 2008, I got very close. I missed it by six tenths of 1% in 2008. And it was a partisan race. And unlike uh, Rhonda, I did not say, yeah, let's go again. I said, whoa, wait, that was kind of hard. And uh, it wasn't until our legislature changed the race to a nonpartisan one that I decided to go ahead and give it another shot. And the good news is I won by a sizable margin over four men in my second race. So, um, you know, you can, uh, for Valerie and anybody, you know, sometimes you have to lose before you win. But I remember visiting with one former office holder who told me that every time you run for office, you have to be prepared to lose. You have to think you're going to win, but you can't, you know, you have to be prepared uh, just in case it doesn't, it doesn't work out. But I think women, um, sometimes it's hard. Some of the obstacles obviously are, we think we have to be perfect many times, especially us type A lawyers. 
And so we're afraid to put ourselves out, you know, now, thank goodness, um, we can joke about big hair in the 80s, um, but we can also be grateful that there was no social media when we were all in college. And so, um, you know, we, we don't have that to worry about. And I know it's intimidating to think about, geez, you know, people are going to look at my whole background and everything. So you have to be a little bit aware of that, but nobody's perfect and you have to own any mistakes you've made in the past. Now, you know, you have to be realistic, but um, and, and, you know, you shouldn't hold yourself back just because out of fear. I mean, talk to people who run for office, learn what it's like, get advice, like the good advice that you heard Rhonda giving, um, about whether you've had any service experience. Um, and, you know, I've talked to, to women who are early in their legal careers who say, okay, in 15 years, I'm going to be a judge. How do I get there? you know, or what did you do? And, and study, you know, we all studied to go to law school. We, we got through college, we got through law school, we figured out how to do all this. Running for office is a similar skill or learning to, you know, do what needs to be done to now in some States, of course, um, you know, you don't run, you get, you get appointed and that's a whole nother uh, situation, I guess. Uh, and it has to do a lot with connections, but um, it's something that, you know, is, is very doable, but it is kind of intimidating. And to answer your question, I think that's one of the obstacles. I think women, women with families, uh, women with a lot of obligations that need to be balanced. Sometimes it's a lot to think about just going out there and running. Um, but if we don't run, who will? And I've been running um, a long time. I started uh, in 1999 and the, um, the, there were about, I don't know, 30 people that applied for the appointment, and I was very fortunate to get it, but then I had to run right away, and I've never been involved politically. I had zero experience, um, but, you know, the first thing you do is you find um, mentors in the political arena, people that have done it before, that can give you the kind of advice. Um, I remember going to a political event, and on the way out, I was just trying to be friendly, and I said to this woman, wasn't that a great speaker? Apparently she didn't like the speaker. And she went off on me. And I said, so I learned, don't say that. Wait to see what they say. And then, and then say nothing if you can't agree with them or agree. Um, but, you know, it's, it's little things like that. I've always had opponents. And so I grew up, Texas has 27 million people. I've been from one part of the state to the other part of the state and also surround yourself with people who support you, uh, Valerie. So you get the mentors, the people in the political arena that can help identify, you know, may maybe what you could have done a little differently. Um, and then I think the, the other thing I'll mention is just this work and family responsibilities. My daughter's 28 now, graduate, a couple of really wonderful schools, a law clerk for a federal judge. And I still feel guilt, you know, was I there enough when she was little or was I too busy, you know, campaigning? Did I pay enough attention at the soccer game or was I, when I was practicing law, was I reading the motion for Monday morning? And you have to cut yourself a little slack. I mean, if, if, um, if you were giving everything 100% that day, it's not going to look like 100% another day. But we have to, to, to cut ourselves some slack and, and give us as much love and affection and attention to all of the people that want it from us. 
um, it's a work in progress. It, I don't I don't think there's an easy answer. Um, Valerie, find that balance and seek those mentors and that support system, and, and you'll get there. I know you will. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much. I do want to just piggyback on that question a little bit because I think something that we're seeing that's a little unusual and it's not it's not unique to Texas is that it's a women versus, you know, a woman versus woman. And, um, and the dynamic of that and how that might be a challenge um, uh, to, to run. But uh, I know that we have, and it's not necessarily just for elections, but, you know, sometimes there aren't very many places for women and we do compete for leadership <laughs> positions between ourselves. Could you maybe give a, a advice about how to, how to do that um, with what I would say with courage and grace, but also with civility? Justice Walker, do you want to start us off? Sure, because I, I guess I opened this box a little bit with my previous answer in terms of um, raising each other up and being mentors and, and all of that. And I think um, there's not a lot of, you know, I don't, I try not to treat, you know, I, when I ran, I ran against my first time around a woman and a man, and then my second race was four men. So I didn't treat uh, Justice Workman, who now I serve with, by the way, was the woman who beat me the first time around. Um, I didn't treat her any differently than anybody else. I think you have to have a baseline of civility. This is just my personal opinion to do this work and to do it successfully. Um, you know, you, you can get, you can achieve short-term gains with sort of the cutthroat, you know, mentality or play into, you know, what you could call whatever we're doing right now, which is tribalism or, or, you know, differences of opinion that are so ingrained, but in, in short term gains, you can, you can get there, but in the long run, um, you have to be who you are. You can't be somebody else. And you really do have to have a fundamental respect for people, especially people you disagree with. I, you know, being running in the first, I'll, I'll end with this, running in the first nonpartisan race here for judges in West Virginia um, was a really unique opportunity because I went to political events that were uh, sponsored by the other side when I ran in a partisan race and I just showed up and they said, well, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm asking for your vote. I mean, I'm, I, you know, but you don't agree with this. I said, well, you know, I'm going to be a judge for everyone. So I probably ought to listen to what you all think. And I think um, that's part of it too. You have to be able to develop respect for everyone. Cause that's another thing that just comes through. And if you don't have it, um, uh, folks can tell. And this is Eva um, Guzman, and, and I think that um, we're opponents, not enemies, and that's something that we, we should all bear in mind. Um, women running against women, women running against men. I, so my last name is Guzman, and my last opponent, he kept tweeting about El Chapo Guzman, you know, the drug lord, and you know, it was just terrible because he would mention me, then he would mention El Chapo Guzman. And so, um, but you know, that's a man doing it. A, a woman could have done the same thing. I try to rise above it as a candidate. I've run seven elections contested in the general in the primary for the most part. I, I'd have to go back and look, but I think I've always had an opponent and I've really tried to rise above that. And as a judicial candidate, I've tried to talk about, um, you know, not liberal judges and conservative judges, but approaches to 
the work that we do, um, approach, judicial philosophy, um, docket management, community engagement, all of those things that might interest voters, as opposed to uh, telling someone how horrible this person is. You know, I, I focus on myself. I became, I'm no longer somebody took this distinction away from me, but I did become the highest vote getter in the history of the state. And it's running a positive campaign. And so I think we have to decide for ourselves as individuals, what kind of campaign we want to run. And I don't think a positive campaign is necessarily in a judicial context, any less effective than a, a negative campaign. Judicial campaigns are different. Um, I think when you get into uh, pure politics where you're talking policy, 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 then people do draw um, uh, more market distinctions. And um, then, you know, I still think people should be civil and classy, even if they're running on, on policy issues, but you see more of it in that context. I haven't seen that many bad judicial races. I really haven't in all my years. Justice Wood. So um, I, the, the one race that I lost in the court appeals race, I ran against who, someone who's now sitting on the court with me. And um, I think that when I, when I took office to the Supreme Court in 15, um, there was a lot of sort of, I would hear whispering about like, how's it gonna be when they work together? And maybe it was sort of this version of people thought, you know, women get catty or I don't know that, you know, if they were opponents that then they couldn't come back and work together or something. And, um, and so it was sort of, you know, I think that I made the extra effort and she made the extra effort to make sure that we, worked well together and, you know, initially just, you know, tried to not show anything um, that would show any appearance of that the public would lose confidence in their Supreme Court, you know, and that our ability to work together. And it was so silly to me because that, you know, at that point had been like five years earlier. So why people would, you know, possibly think that, you know, a, a contested race, I mean, it was granted really, really close result, but still um, it's kind of silly. Um, but, um, so I think that we just have that sort of burden um, sort of as leaders to come for, you know, to make sure that that perception um, is altered um, and that we dispel any sort of preconceived notions that, you know, women that are opponents cannot, you know, still come back together after the election's over and work well together. Um, and so um, I just think sometimes you gotta be really cognizant and, and attuned to what you know, is going on out there and what people may be saying and that you make sure you just sort of nip it in the bud immediately, <laughs> um, that that doesn't happen. Thank you so much. I appreciate um, all your responses. And I think, you know, one of the things was you're going to see these people again. Don't, you might even work with these people again, right? So don't, don't forget that. Um, we're going to round it out with one of the, I feel, you know, one of the greatest questions, which is why, why do we do this? Why do we need women um, in leadership roles? Um, and so I'd love for, uh, Justice Wood, I'm going to let you start this one off. So why, why do we need women in, in leadership roles? Um, I have a granddaughter who's 10. And um, so we need leaders, one, so we're not having these conversations. Um, I hope that, you know, 15 years from now, Blakely is not having a conversation about being in a group setting where men are not acknowledging her ideas. 
you know, or that men aren't talking about if she runs for office about who's raising her children or, you know, just the issues we're discussing. Um, that, you know, the only way that doesn't happen is by women being leaders and women taking over those roles and, and sort of sharing that experience. And one, so that people like Valerie will run for office um, and encourage them to do that. And then women having a seat at the table. Um, that that's important, um, that we have a seat at the table and um, that we're sort of leading by example and we're encouraging, you know, the attorneys, all of you and your group, and then the generation after you and the generation after that, um, hopefully um, to do that. And it's because, you know, women make up, you know, what, 51% of the population. And so I think it matters um, that when they go out to hire attorneys, that they have choices, that they feel um, with counsel, that um, they can choose, that they feel like someone from a similar background and someone that may relate from their personal experiences. And then when they go into court, that it is not, you know, just that people that never have the background or look like them, sound like them, experience that background. Um, and that we have judges that understand a variety of sort of cultural and um, different backgrounds and experiences. And so I think it matters that um, for us and it matters for the litigants. And taking up off of uh, your point, Justice Wood, about, you know, who is appearing before us in court? You know, we want the judiciary to reflect, you know, exactly who is in court. And so when you have a judiciary that's mostly white, mostly male, it it's not the same as the folks who are appearing in court. So I think, you know, but but playing off of that, you know, why do we need women? There's some interesting statistics uh, that I believe it's American Constitution Society has put together on the gavel gap in state courts in this country. And West Virginia is the same as many other places. You know, even our bar is only uh, our, our active in-state West Virginia women lawyers are about 34% of the bar. Um, so that's low already. Uh, but then when you, put, when you put the judiciary on top of that, um, our statistics are not great. So it's just really important that we keep inspiring and working. It changes the dynamic when women are involved. And that's why I think we should be leaders. Um, when I came on the court in 2017, uh, again, we have a court of five Supreme Court justices. We're a little state, so that's enough. Um, and three of the, of the justices uh, were women when I came on the court. And we were one of only 10 or 11 states with the majority of women on the Supreme Court. But as a result of many colorful events that are the subject of a future podcast, I'm sure, um, I will now be the only woman on the court as of January 1, uh, when my dear colleague, Justice Margaret Workman, retires after many, many years um, on the court. But having been in the conference room when there were three women, and, and now two women, and I suspect when there was one woman, the dynamic is totally different. Uh, it, and I'm not going to say it's because I, I, I'm not a a sociologist. I'm not Brene Brown. I can't tell you what the data is, um, but it is different. And I think that uh, that's important. I think that we, whether you call it having a seat at the table, whether you call it reflecting the people who bear before us, whether you call it just, you know, representing whatever you want to call it, 
um, I think that there, it makes a difference when women are involved in a difference in a good way. And that's why we should be leading. And I'll just close with uh, one thought uh, on that point. And I agree with my colleagues, um, Justice um, Wood and, and Walker, but the public's confidence in the justice system is greatly strengthened when it is diverse. And when they can see that um, the unique and, and equally valuable um, perspectives of women are part of the decision-making process. So I think institutionally, it is very important to, to have a diverse bench. And as every, everyone on this call can, can play a role um, in that, share your light. Um, someone was said, your candle loses nothing when it lights another. Let's share our light and improve that diversity mentorship. I just saw some of the names of some of the TTLA leaders on this call. They're incredible mentors. There's so many young women around the state that look up to Christy Castle and, and, and yourself, Elizabeth Larrick, and everyone. So that's another way. Um, and let's keep growing. Um, this seminar, these types of conversations are so important to that question of diversity. And then they actually increase the awareness of why it matters to have women on the bench and, and to have diverse perspectives. Thank you. You've been listening to a portion of a virtual event organized by the Women's Chapter of the Texas Trial Lawyers Association, Justice Rhonda Wood, Justice Beth Walker, and me, Justice Eva Guzman, took questions from women attorneys about women in leadership. We want to thank the association for having us. We really enjoy the experience. It's hard to believe, but this is the final episode of 2020. We want to be sure to say that we wish you a very happy and very healthy holiday season. And now I'm joined by my fellow lady justices and ladies. I'd love to hear some of your favorite holiday traditions. I grew up with many traditions like I'm sure you did, but one that we've carried on into adulthood is at the end of Christmas dinner, we gather around the table as a group and talk about one thing that we're grateful for that happened that year. It's a fun discussion. And when the kids get in on it, and they always do, it can be really funny. You know, uh, this saying, the kids say the darndest things. Oh, it's so true. But it's a lot of fun. I hope my own daughter carries it on in, into her um, family. The other is that no matter what we're having for dinner, whether it's a ribeye roast or turkey, we always have tamales, homemade tamales. Only these days they're not homemade. That's an art and it's not one we've been able to carry on, but we always enjoy our tamales at Christmas time. Justice McCormick, what about you? I'm not sure how holiday-ish this particular um, tradition is, but it is what always makes me feel like it's finally Christmas time. In my house, we celebrate Christmas. Um, we always get a really hard puzzle and we take over the dining room table, which means nobody can eat there. And we work on it in fits and starts. And you never know who you're going to be um, stuck kind of working with in any given moment, which are the adult kids or parents and I find some of the sweetest interactions um, standing over that table, working on that puzzle um, with people in my family. That sounds so nice. Justice Walker, do you have a tradition in, in your household you wanna share with us? 
Um, one holiday tradition that my husband brought to our family is that he believes that the Christmas season should not begin until Santa Claus arrives at Herald Square at the end of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. No Christmas carols, no decorating, no anything until Santa makes his way to Herald Square. We had a brief discussion uh, this year about whether the virtual parade was good enough for the arrival of the Christmas season, and we decided it was because Santa did indeed arrive at Herald Square. So that's a fun uh, tradition in the Walker household. And Justice Wood, how about you? What happens at your house? One of our family traditions is that my husband and I are avid readers. And so for our family get together, we go out and we select everybody a book. And so for last year, that's everybody's first present that they open was a book. And so there were 17 last year on our family Christmas. And so the youngest were actually two that were um, babies to be um, because we had two expectant mothers. Um, And um, then we had a three month old and then all the way up to a 92 year old and everybody received a book. And so that's one of the things that we enjoy doing in our family Christmas. That's great. Those also are like so much fun and, and they're so heartwarming. Now that you mentioned books, Justice Wood, that's actually a good transition into um, my other question. Um, I wanted to ask everyone as we wrap up our episode, what's been on your reading list lately? Name two books you've enjoyed that you would recommend um, to others. Justice Wood, why don't you start us off? Two books that I recommend are um, Cry the Beloved Country. And it's by Alan, I think Patone is how you pronounce it, P-A-T-O-N. And it's from 1948, and the setting is South Africa, and it's really a story about humanity that is still relevant today. And the second is Bridge of Clay, and it's by Marcus Zusak. And again, I may get the name wrong, and it's spelled Z-U-S-A-K. It's He wrote The Book Thief, and it is also about overcoming odds and forgiveness. Justice Walker, what about you? I'll just mention two uh, works of fiction that I have recently enjoyed very much. The first was recommended to be actually by Justice Wood uh, recently. A Gentleman in Moscow, a book by Amor Tolls, um, was really a great read. It's, a, it's very long and thick, but definitely worth the effort. And then another one actually that I listened to recently on uh, audiobook was The Good Lord Bird. Uh, by James McBride. It is, that well, the, narr- the audiobook narrator is just phenomenal, and it's an amazing story, and it has a little West Virginia tie, as it is a fictionalized version of uh, John Brown's attack in Harper's Ferry just prior to the Civil War. So those are uh, two recommendations from me. And Justice McCormick? Um, Leave it to me to not follow the instructions. I'm going to do one, my favorite fiction book of all time, and one is a nonfiction book, but it's a book I've read most recently that I find myself talking about the most. Um, And that is Upstream by Dan Heath. And it is a um, wonderful book about solving complex problems um, and the ways in which... um, People have to surround a problem with um, crossing disciplines 
and working on that problem upstream. I can't recommend it enough. If I had more time, I would tell you a lot more about what I love about it. Um, Dan Heath, Upstream. My favorite fiction book of all time is A Confederacy of Dunces because it is hilarious and um, I literally laugh out loud every time I read it. I think I read it for the first time when I was 22 or 23. I'm 54 now and I've read it a number of times um, and expect to read it over the holidays. What I've been reading lately, the one I just finished, is A Long Petal of the Sea by Isabel Allende. She's one of my favorite authors and I love historical fiction. It just takes me away to a different place and away from any stress or anything that's going on in my own life. The novel is set in the 1930s and takes a young couple on a journey across two continents um, as they flee the Spanish Civil War. They arrive in Chile and the novel is a fascinating journey through their own lives, their relationship, but also the political changes in Chile. It's a great read, I highly recommend it. The other that I just finished is A Time for Mercy by John Grisham. He brings back Jake Brigance into the courtroom and I had the uh, pleasure of meeting John Grisham at an Access to Justice event last year. I actually got to sit next to him and it, I was just over the moon. Of course, I didn't bring up his books, but he's a fascinating man, a wonderful author. And again, his books are just such a good escape from um, uh, whatever's going on in our lives. So I really recommend A Time for Mercy. Great book. It's on the New York Times bestseller list. At least it is as of this recording. Thank you, ladies. It was great to be with you again. This is episode four of our podcast. If you've not listened to other episodes and would like to, you can go to our website, ladyjusticepod.com and find them. The website also has links to our social media and tells you how you can submit questions or feedback about the program. We would love to hear from you. We're also on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting apps. Just search for Lady Justice, Women of the Court. The opinions expressed on this program are ours alone and not necessarily those of our respective courts. Again, we wish all the very best to you and yours this holiday season. Until we meet again. <laughs>